1: This past Tuesday, we experienced a horrific act of violence, an incomprehensible action leading to the death of 19 children and two adults in Texas. As a father of a seven-year-old, I have no idea of the pain, tragedy, and loss that that community is facing. Irma Garcia was one of the two teachers who died in the school shooting, and it's now reported that her husband of 24 years has passed from what doctors have diagnosed as broken heart syndrome, clinically known as Takasobi cardiomyopathy. I don't think that anyone has the correct answer to ensure that this never happens again. But I do think that we have to pull together and find a solution. I don't think that gun legislation or even mental health availability individually are the answers. It's much more complicated. But we must make the commitment to do whatever it takes to protect our children from such senseless tragedies. Our love and prayers go out to all the families of Uvalde, Texas. Hey everybody, Doc Brine here, and welcome to Doc Talks. We talk about people's troubles, trials, tribulations, and hopefully triumphs in life. Today I have with me John and Amanda. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Okay. John and Amanda Pulley. And um, I met John a few, uh, a few. well, it's been a, a, almost two months now. Just fell in love with his heart and, and his mission and, and everything that he does. And so they're with me today. Um, they have Pulley constru- uh, Construction, Pulley Construction. Uh, build <laughs> you, you build no. relationships. Uh, there
2: we go. Yeah. There we go.
1: yeah. 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 Pulley Consulting. So, uh, John or Amanda, whoever wants to kind of take the rein here, just tell us a little bit about uh, the consulting business that you're doing.
2: Well, we're we're trying to be very specific in what we do because uh, Amanda and I both have experience over the last. I mean, I think between the two of us, we have about ten years of experience working in. The fight against human trafficking in America, and over the course of the time that we've been doing that, we've um, we've seen a lot, and we've learned a lot, and there's a lot to be covered. I mean, you're talking about a, a you know at least a thirty-two billion dollar estimated industry in the United States alone, one hundred fifty billion globally. So we've got to get out and fight this thing. And I think in the midst of the work that we've done, we've uncovered and unpacked a lot of things that we see that really need to be tackled that are not, I I mean, I don't know, I hate to call them flaws or errors in the human trafficking field, but I feel like there are ways that we can do things that will bring about greater healing and greater, uh, you know, like you said, greater triumph for those who have been in a very vulnerable position and put into places that no one should ever be put in. And of course, that's Amanda's side of things, doing training for advocacy, building out strategic plans for human trafficking organizations. Uh, On my side, I work on really my, my passion and my heart is on helping people to become authentic and genuine about the struggles in their life. Because when we look at human trafficking and start backing it out, There are factors that are driving human trafficking. That's the buyer side of which we a lot of times are very uncomfortable talking about pornography or strip clubs or places like that. And I think there just needs to be some open dialogue about those. And so our our focus is really on helping to train and equip anti-human trafficking organizations to do a more effective job at reaching the populations in their communities.
1: Sure. So... I'm sure everybody in America has heard the term human trafficking, but Amanda, could you just kind of tell us what exactly that means?
0: So there's a couple different ways that we can define that. The legal definition of human trafficking is the use of force, fraud or coercion in a commercial sex act. There, ha- You have to be able to prove force, fraud or coercion for anyone that's over the age of 18. Most people who are working in the anti-trafficking field though, what they're really fighting against is sexual exploitation. So sexual exploitation is when something of value is exchanged for sex. So if I am homeless and have nowhere to sleep tonight and you say, well, if you have sex with me, I'll let you stay here. That would be sexual exploitation. And really that value can be anything it can be love it can be drugs it can be medication it can be a safe place to sleep you know it can be food it can be whatever that person values really when we say we're fighting human trafficking we're actually fighting sexual exploitation
1: okay because I was I was thinking what really is the difference between that and prostitution other than The prostitute is looking for work, while in this case, it may be that someone is offering to give them something in return for sex.
0: So from our lens, um, prostitution, about 80 percent of those in prostitution are actually victims of human trafficking. And so when we look at that we are looking from a very different lens. We're seeing their vulnerabilities. Exodus Cry put out a great video a few years ago that talks about how prostitution is the choice of the choiceless. And really, it's a last choice that most people have. And so the reality is, when you look at someone who's in prostitution, there's something that caused them to get to that point. Our culture wants us to believe that it's women's empowerment that caused them to get there. But that's honestly one of the biggest lies our culture is selling right now.
1: So how do we recognize human trafficking? Uh, You know, with, with what I do as a pastor, let's look at it from a church standpoint. What are some things that we're going to be looking for or things that we're going to be trying to make sure that it isn't happening in our safe place or that we could keep that from happening?
2: Well, I'll start with this, I'll let Amanda finish, but I feel like there is, one of the things that happens inside of, of trafficking is that every human trafficking victim has their vulnerabilities preyed upon. And I heard somebody say recently, we need to say, maybe you actually, I'm talking about life here, but I said recently, we need to stop focusing on the signs of human trafficking and start focusing on the vulnerabilities that drive it, that we go a little bit further upstream to stop things. Um, and I feel like there are, there are a thousand things for pastors to look for. But I mean, I think that when I, I'll speak about it from the male side, I mean, we know that in general, trafficking exists primarily because of supply and demand. If we didn't have somebody buying, we would not have a product to sell. So buyers, men who are predominantly male, at least in the United States, they are predominantly white males. That is true. But what most people don't recognize is most people, when they think of human trafficking, they think of white vans and homeless people. The people who do 75% of the purchasing of people in America are are typically people who make over $100,000 a year. There are bankers in your community. There are politicians in their community sitting across the church from you. So I think it's a really great question you asked, Doc, to say, what can we look for? I think we've got to start looking for different things other than just the particulars, because there are signs, right? And Amanda will talk to some of that, too. But I think we've got to look at that vulnerability piece thing first.
0: I think the signs that we're looking for are hard to see if you're looking from a distance. So the reality is, is we need to be in community with each other and we need to be paying attention to the vulnerabilities that are within our sphere of influence. Um, So the people that are coming to your church, the people that are coming to your youth groups, the people who are in your book clubs or running groups, because honestly, what you're looking for is a behavior change. You're looking for... um, control being that someone's being controlled, that they're, they're not able to have the freedoms that they used to have. Traffickers are really, really good at their job. They're good at selling you a lie. You don't know it's a lie because you think they're selling you your dream life. So oftentimes they figure out what your vulnerability is. They figure out where your dreams are. They're really good at listening to you and figuring out what you want in life and then selling it to you that they can provide that for you. And then once they've built relationship with you, then they start, um, going through a process of grooming you and isolating you and really when we look at identifying trafficking oftentimes when we get to the isolation part is when people start going something's not right that's the piece where we start seeing a little bit more of the generalized signs um you know for years we were told well if somebody has more than one phone or they're constantly tied to their phone well I mean <laughs> I'm a professional and I have two phones because I have one for work so that red flag is maybe a little flawed
1: yeah I'm a little tied to my phone but I don't think I'm being trafficked.
0: Right. Um, You know, a lot of times we're looking for people who are not dressed appropriately for the weather, especially in the colder months. um, If they are being forced into prostitution, you're going to notice by the way that they're dressed. A funny story that could give you some indicators of red flags is um, I have three children and John and I had taken one of my daughters out for her birthday. We took her to a fair. I gave John my wallet, my ID, my every, like I asked him to hang on to it just because, you know, he's a guy he can throw it in his back pocket. And, you know, I didn't want to have to carry a purse. Well, we went to the gas station afterwards and my daughter was like, Hey, can I buy some snacks? I was like, sure. So we're at the register and I look at John and I'm like, can I have my credit card? And immediately I thought this lady should be looking at us going, what's the play here? Like, what's going on? Why is there a control? Like, why does he have her card? You know, especially because I know y'all can't see me, but John and I have an age difference as well. So you add that piece in there and- the She's fact- older. She's
2: older, clearly.
0: Yeah, you wish. <laughs> okay, maybe
2: not. Yeah, uh, John definitely,
1: he definitely married up. I can can say that it's true.
0: So, I mean, those are some signs that you can look for. Um, There is often a control factor over whether that's a child in someone's life or um, a younger brother or sister, and that protective factor of, well, if you don't do what I say, I'm going to go after them. So, looking for those subtle signs. Obviously, I wasn't being trafficked in that scenario, but that teller at the gas station should have. Started asking questions and you know, have a peaked interest around what's really going on here.
2: Let me speak to the community piece too, because I think what most people don't understand is because of the movie Taken, because of how human trafficking has been portrayed as someone that is captured, stolen, and forced into this life. I think, from a community standpoint in your church, the reason you want to be in community and pay attention to one another is because a trafficker. A girl that, or, a, or a young boy or a, a man or a woman, even again, the age is not necessarily you know restricted to just uh, young people. But what will happen is if a criminal sells drugs, for instance, they, they go to the Colombians, they get their drugs, they sell their drugs and they have to go back to the Colombians and get more. Right. So there's this constant risk going on with a the trafficker. They will. Take someone's vulnerability and if a woman or a man in trafficking, they estimate makes between a hundred thousand and hundred fifty thousand dollars a year per person that is in what a trafficker would call their stable. So when you're talking about that's not you're going across the border risking, you're getting someone that is taking all of the risk and you're in the back, you know, you're not risking at all. She's out there getting sold. But in that, A trafficker, and this is the important part for community and watching for these switches, they don't happen overnight. A trafficker will take six months, a year, two years to slowly groom not only a woman or a young man in that, they're grooming the family members. They're grooming the the parents who feel like they're not enough and they're helping to take care of this teenager in your church. And so these changes, these changes, a lot of times in what we do will be subtle. And so you'll need it when you're in community. You can start to see, well, when she spends time with him, she's starting to act differently. And this is not an overnight thing. This isn't over months, maybe even a year. So I'll just speak to that community piece, say, as your church, you got to really know one another and stay in community.
0: And I'll say, too, that the church oftentimes is one of the communities that is least willing to identify trafficking. Mm -hmm. There is trafficking and traffickers that specifically send young people into youth groups to find out the vulnerabilities of other youth in the youth group. I was trafficked by a youth leader in my church. So this is not something that the church community is able to escape just because, well, we're a church community. Right.
1: Right. So as you know, I was a police officer for, for a number of years and there was this continuum of criminal activity. And what I mean by that is that someone would start out being a peeping Tom and they would do that and then they would be caught in indecent exposure or, or public, um, sexual acts, and then they would move to rape or molestation. Do you see that within within what your organization does, that there is this progression uh, within the trafficking?
2: I'll speak to the buyer side of things. I think that um, for me as someone that is a former porn and sex addict and also a former buyer, right? These are all things that are in my past. That's a whole different podcast. But in that, I think that what what most people who are addicted to porn, and I will say people, is they'll find that when, when whenever I do an, an event, I'll be standing in front of a group of 100 men and I'll say, raise your hand if you remember the first time you saw porn. Every hand goes up. Then I'll say, raise your hand if you remember what you saw the third time you looked at porn and nearly nobody lifts up their hand. You remember the first time and it triggers that dopamine, right? You know, well, it triggers things in your brain that in order to get a deeper high from what you're looking at, you have to look at something more, more extreme, Or And this is why you see the peeping time, the indecent exposure, the rape. And and again, that's not always the path. But in in pornography, I mean, the statistics on pornography are crazy. Like in the 30 minutes that we will sit here and talk, literally in that 30 minutes, 2.4 million people will go to one porn website because they keep going back and going back and going back because they need more. So I think in answer to your question, my path, at least I can speak to mine. I started looking at more extreme levels of porn. I started looking at more different things. I'm tired of looking at this. I need to look at this genre of porn and see, you know, I'm ready to look at BDSM or you get go through the list of things. Right. In that, I think that there's also, because for a sex offense to occur from a buyer standpoint, especially going after minors, there needs to be three things. There need to be fantasies right? You have to have a sexual fantasy about it. You need to have thinking errors, right? There's something disconnected up there. And the third thing that you need is you need opportunity. So I think the more that people dive in and go down these roads, the more they start fantasizing about different types of opportunities. And that sometimes leads to illegal activity.
1: Sure. Now, uh, Amanda, you you said that you were trafficked by, by a youth leader. Could you kind of tell us not necessarily how it happened, but when you realized what was happening.
0: I didn't realize until probably almost 10 years after the fact. Mm-hmm. So, when I was a kid, there was no, I don't remember ever hearing anything about human trafficking. And it wasn't until I went to an event and heard about human trafficking and was like, huh, I think with the sexual abuse that I had in my childhood, I could empathize and maybe volunteer with this organization. I went in and talked to the director, and she said, Hey, you should read Rebecca Bender's Roadmap. Uh, it's a book called Roadmap to Redemption. And she's a survivor, um, a very well-known national leader, um, does amazing work. And in her book started explaining what trafficking was. And I remember being completely overwhelmed because that weird thing that happened to me when I was a teenager that I didn't have any words for that I believed for years and years that it was my fault. There was no terminology for it. And with the work that I've done in the last seven years with survivors, that's a common thread is while they're in it, they're not identifying that, Hey, I'm in a trafficking situation. It's not until somebody on the outside says, Hey, like I've been there too. And they give them some language and they help them figure out that they're actually being forced into whether that's prostitution or, you know, straight out trafficking situation where they're just being sold consistently. So I think a lot of times it's misidentified by the community. It's misidentified by the faith community, but then survivors themselves are not even necessarily identifying it. I have seen it get a little bit better over the years, the more that we're talking about it. However, there's still a lot of misidentification, especially within familial trafficking, as well as sexual exploitation.
2: And even on the law enforcement side is when you start looking at it, it's it's learning to give language to the law enforcement officers as well. Because again, even saying the term, I mean, I remember when I first spoke in the anti trafficking where they said, you can't say prostitute. I'm like, why can't I say prostitute? That's what that is. They're like, no, no, no. Say prostituted women. Now, again, there's a subtle difference in the two, right? Instead of saying she was sexually assaulted, she was raped as a child, right? There's a. It's just, we clean things up. But what we're learning through years is like, for for instance, for as, a, as a police officer, if you had somebody that was being prostituted or arrested at for prostitution, and you sit them down and go, tell me who your pimp is, they don't have a pimp. Mm. They have a really screwed up relationship with their boyfriend who sells them to other people, but they don't have a pimp. If like, they
0: even identified that, right. they're likely not going to tell you anything because there's repercussions for them when they go back home. So yeah. they're given that script. I mean, law enforcement, we often tell them arrest for prostitution, arrest for petty theft can sometimes be a sign of human trafficking or disorderly conduct. There's a few things that when we start seeing that pattern emerge, that this person is consistently being arrested for these things, it's worth asking the question, is there more to the story?
1: Yeah. When I was a police officer, there was this well-known, I won't say prostitute, I'll say sex worker. And she was 87 years old and still had plenty of clientele. I found her in this apartment complex that she had been trespassed from. And I mean, she was, I hate to say she was a little frail woman, but that's the only way that I can can explain it. I said, you got to go. Her first name was Mia and i she's dead now. So, and I said, Mia, you can't be here. You've got to go. And she slapped me and took off running. And I remember looking at JP and going, am I supposed to chase her? Like, you know, it, it, how does this work? He said, well, if we don't get her, you're you're going to be the laughing stock for not catching an 87-year-old woman who just slapped you. So, of course, I had to, to run after her. But the thing with her was is that when she would get into jail, her priority was to get out as quickly as she could because she was scared to be in there because her people didn't know where she was at. And so that led us to believe that not only was somebody – using her within that, but that, that they were threatening her in some sort of way that if she wasn't producing, that there were repercussions in, in that instance, we could see that as being sex trafficking. Would that be a fair statement?
0: Yeah. Um, with just a little amount of information that you've been able to share with me, I would definitely look at that case and say, there's probably more to it. Obviously without talking to her, I don't believe that in putting terms on other people's stories. I very much sit with them and say like, is this your, you know, is this what's going on and help them walk out their journey of identifying what's really happening to them. But I do see that that would in my mind be probably a trafficking scenario. Yeah.
1: Well, I in, in six years of working, I arrested her probably 50 to 60 times for disorderly conduct, trespassing, petty theft, uh, some larceny. And so that is kind of fitting the the bill here, I guess you could say. Now, John, you kind of work with a different side where there is advocation against pornography against those other areas. Can you just briefly tell us about that?
2: I think that there is, it's a so hard. I'm going to say a couple of things that may not be popular in our world. I, w- I, I would I
1: expect nothing
2: less. Uh, thank you. You've known me well. Um, I think that the, are there women out there that are choosing to be prostitutes? Yep, there are. They are the minority by far. Are there women that choose to be, you know, dancers in a strip club? Yes, Maybe a few more of them choose to do that, but there's all of that. But what I'm saying is behind all of those vulnerabilities is something else. I look at what is driving it, right? What I'd say fantasy, opportunity, thinking, errors. Where do people come up with the ideas to do the things that they do? And how many, I mean, I I think about this, it was not a trafficking case, but I had the opportunity about four years ago to hear Elizabeth Smart. Who was kidnapped, you know, remember she was up in Colorado and she was kidnapped and she was gone for a period of time, but she told the story of how her kidnappers would show porn and say, this is what you're going to do tonight. And as you talk to the girls that are in this industry, that's not unusual either. That is a normal thing, is they're they're paying for someone to do something that they're fantasizing about because they're not intimate with their wives. And when I say intimate with their wives, I want to be very crystal clear. Sex and intimacy are vastly different things. Absolutely. They're vastly different things. And my problem with pornography, I don't like, I don't, I don't care about the naked people side. We were born that way. But I, I care about the fact that. What porn is teaching us, porn takes, it does a bunch of things. Number one is it goes, you can't really tell anybody you're looking at it, but then it doesn't feel good. It teaches you to hide. Um, another thing that porn does, it builds this false sense of intimacy. Anybody that's looked at pornography, I mean, I'm sure there's no one on your show that's ever done that, but anybody that looks at pornography knows that its it's a dead end. You don't get to the end and go, oh, I'm closer to my wife now. So all of these fantasies that are driving and being driven by the dopamine rush and give to get a different high continue to expand and become more and more, which makes us want more and more. And so my, I'm not going to ask my wife to let me beat her with a baseball bat, but if I pay... for somebody, maybe I can do that, right? There's clearly some other issues going on if you want to beat somebody with a baseball bat. But in all of that, I go, what I'm trying to look at is I'm trying to get men to get to the point where, and I say, men, the porn usage among women is skyrocketing. It is skyrocketing. I mean, even... Even the one Pornhub who's gotten in so much trouble, thank God, the last time they put out a real report on all of their stuff was in 2019. But but women, these users have gone 30% on their website. So I say all of that to say I feel like there needs to be a level of honesty about what this is doing to us, pretending that human trafficking doesn't happen in our churches does not stop human trafficking. Pretending domestic violence that doesn't happen in our churches is not stopping domestic violence. Pretending like porn is not impacting the relationships that you have with your wife and the way that you treat your children and teach your children, your young men, how to objectify women in order to get sex. Whether you're saying it out loud... Or not, your kids learn a whole lot more about what you do and how you treat your wife than they do about what you say. That's always true. And so inside of all this, there's a general numbing that's going on to intimacy, which is the greatest thing in the world. If you have somebody that you know everything about them and they know everything about you, there's no secrets between the two of you. I'm going to tell you right now, the sex is mind blowing. It is truly mindless. It's not, it's an intimacy that you have. It's not a physical act. And I think that porn is driving families and children further and further away from that. For example, why is porn an issue? The average age of, that kids see porn for the first time is 11. The statistic is that 94% of kids by the time they're 14 years old will have seen pornography. So if you're having your talk with your kids about sex at 14, guess what? They've already learned a lot of stuff from somebody that wants to train them that it's just purely a physical act. Who cares? Hookup culture is great. Why is that? What does that have to do with human trafficking? It gets us all to the point where we think that people are just objects to be had and enjoyed even if we pay for them Because i would never ask my wife to do that. I'm going to pay someone else and ask them to do that. So I'm not really, you know, we play all the games. That's why my heart is so passionate. And here's what I'm really passionate about, Brian. Pastors like yourself, if you have an issue with porn, you don't have anywhere to go. Occasionally you do. Occasionally you have friends that you can talk to. But for the most part in America, pastors are not allowed to be that vulnerable and go, I had an issue with porn this week twice this week, three times this week, people go, oh, we must get rid of this pastor. And he's not holy enough to blah, blah, blah. No, it's no different than overeating every week. It's no different than yelling at your wife or gossiping, right? It's no different. It's an addiction. It's a medication for a wounded heart that we've got to get underneath. And the only way I know to get underneath it in the church to stop this tidal wave that's just destroying us, is to talk about this and to get to the point where we can talk about it openly and honestly, because when we can and we can talk about it openly and honestly, it loses the power that it has over us. It's the hiding that gives it and the secrecy that gives it more power than it needs. And that's really, I do that because I recognize that what I did was supporting human trafficking. And I would have never said that. When I was a buyer, I would have never said that. I would have said, nope, I'm giving her money. It's exchanged for sex. She's doing, she's going to college. She's in nursing school, whatever lie she's told me that I want to believe. But what I've realized is that most men that are buyers, I don't think they know what's going on. And most people in churches, I don't think they know what's going on. And we've got to get that education out. But until we can talk openly about it, we're going to stay right where we are because doing the same things we've always done will get us what we've always gotten
1: yeah and now we have this whole conglomerate of mental health practitioners that are telling our kids and other of their clients that porn is healthy, and that if you watch porn with your wife or your husband that it's it's good for your sexual relationship, well, it's not because the person you're seeing on TV is not your husband or your wife. And so those fantasies come with people who are not your husband and your wife. So then you're right back to square one of fantasizing about something that is not realistic for you and your wife or husband or, or whatever.
2: Porn creates an unrealistic expectation of what a relationship is supposed to be in a man's mind. Mm-hmm. Porn is that's what it builds in men is this is what it should be like. I don't know why my wife didn't want it that much. And here's the problem. And, and you know, I think a little differently sometimes, but I'm going, I don't, if porn had, a couple that had been married for 50 years and they were expressing their love for one another and how close they are, that would be something that I might go, maybe you could see that because it evokes this connection, this long-term thing. That ain't what porn is. (laughs) It's what porn knows. It's, oh, you're my plumber fixing my sink. Let's have sex on the kitchen floor. It's not how it works. And so I think I think porn is that way. And that's why it's a problem.
0: And it also creates unrealistic expectations for women. So, I mean, the majority of women who have any understanding that their significant other spouse, whatever has looked at porn, they automatically almost always struggle with body image. Why is he looking at her and not me? Well, what am I not doing well enough? Like they, they, often take on the shame and the feelings of I'm not good enough. So he's going elsewhere and that's really not theirs to carry their spouse. Looking at porn is their spouse's issue, not theirs. However, it, it just fuels a lot of what our culture talks to women and tells women they need to be. And, you know, we're supposed to be barefoot in the kitchen and making food, but a lion in the bedroom. Well, when you have kids or life happens, you've got a job. I mean, that's not a realistic expectation. And then porn comes in and everything becomes this objectification and there's no intimacy and connection anymore.
2: Now, not to leave your female listeners out. I will say this romantic comedies and Hollywood romance novels do the exact same thing for women that porn does for men. It creates this unrealistic, super sensitive. I'm going to start in the notebook kind of image of what a man should be. He should fulfill all of my emotional needs. All he can't. We're not built to fulfill all of each other's needs. And I think that's, again, I just didn't want to leave your female listeners out.
1: Well, I I can say that there have been many times that I have said to my wife, you're watching too much Hallmark again.
2: Yes. And the acting is so bad on the Hallmark channel. It's And and the plot
1: is all the same. It's all the same. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Well, what if instead of saying, hey, you're watching too much Hallmark, you ask her, what kind of connection are you looking for right now? Because she's probably, you know, if I find at least maybe I'm the only woman in the world who's this way, but if I'm watching a Hallmark movie, because it's horrible acting and I'm not really the most girly girl. So I'm not a chick flick lover, but if I am watching a chick flick, it's usually because I'm longing for some sort of connection or romance, or there's a deeper desire in my heart. And so instead of asking the question, well, or instead of making that statement around, well, you're watching an awful lot of that. What if we just started being really honest with each other and saying, what are you looking for? Just like, you know, if John comes to me and says, Hey, I looked at porn today. My answer isn't, well, you horrible person don't you ever do that again. It's okay. Well, what was your heart looking for? You know, what were you running to or running away from that we can sit and have that dialogue about and really connect on that deeper level?
1: Yeah. I'm the therapist. So I get to ask those questions, but I'll give you a, I'll give you a pass on that one. So in wrapping all of this up, if there was one thing, one message that you could give to the world, what would that message
2: be? My message to fathers, if you have a daughter or a son, there is one thing they need to hear from you every day, always. And that is, I love you. And there is nothing in this world that will ever make me not love you. Nothing. And I think that is for families, Traffickers prey upon those with vulnerabilities and the first place they go is they want to separate the girl from their father. Your father will never love you now that this has happened to you. Men say to them and your young men too, over and over and over, you are loved. There is nothing you can ever do that will make me not love you. And I think, yeah, that's not how do we fight human trafficking? Yes, it is that's how we build strength in our daughters and our sons to allow them to be able to not have the vulnerabilities or fewer vulnerabilities that have that traffickers have access to
0: i think for me it's more that there is healing that there is freedom whether i don't care where you are in the equation if you are a trafficker a buyer a survivor maybe you identify as a victim there is 100% complete healing it's a journey but it is well worth walking the journey. And there are people out there who want to walk it with you. And there is help. There's a huge need for training and education 100%. 100%. But in that training and education, we need to recognize that there is hope and there is healing. And that's worth, that's why it's worth identifying properly. Yes. That's why it's worth law enforcement being trained on identifying victims, because ultimately we want healed people. We want people to get the freedom that they need to live the lives they're called to live and walk out their journey, whatever that looks like.
1: Yeah, I, I, the, the the thought that it starts in the home, and that there is hope, are the two things that can get you really through anything. Uh, there's a there's a song that says you're never too broken to belong. That is the message I think that that we would give to not just those who are involved in in sex trafficking, being trafficked, but also to those that um, have committed crimes or or done something to hurt someone, that there is hope for reconciliation. So, uh, John, Amanda, I appreciate you being with us here today on Doc Talks. Uh, I've enjoyed our conversation. Um, I'll make sure to put all of your information, contact information where people can find you in the description of this podcast. And uh, really appreciate you taking your time out of your day to do this
2: for us. It's a privilege, Brian. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you very much.
1: Sex trafficking is something that we don't often talk about, but it is becoming more and more prevalent in our day and age. And it seems like more and more people fall in to being a victim of sex trafficking. If you or someone you love believe that someone is involved in human trafficking, you can call the National Human Trafficking Hotline at one 888 That's 888-373-7888. We must protect each other. We must love each other. We must be available for each other and be vulnerable. Be ready to tell our story. Be ready to get help. I'm Doc Bryan. You can find me on all social media platforms. You can find the links to that on my website at thedocbryan.com. Of course, you can call into our guest line at 910-777-7239. That's 910-777-7239. Give us a call. Tell us your thoughts. Ask questions. You can call or text that line 910-777-7239. Thank you for listening today, and we hope that you have a great rest of your week. Goodbye.